Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition. The 54th edition of Vinitali was held from 10 to the 13th of April. If you missed it, don't worry. Go to vinitaliplus.com for on-demand recordings of all the sessions from the exhibition. And remember to save the date. The next edition of Vinitali will be held from the 2nd to the 5th of April 2023. Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. Welcome to your Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021. Uh, my name is Alice and we have Gus Chu here tonight, uh, today. Uh, the topic today for this session is called A Matter of Taste, Exploring the Differences Between the Palace of Chinese and Chinese American Wine Professionals. So before Gus Chu, Master of Wine start, I will give a short description of our, our guest speaker today. Um, Gus is the first Chinese National Master of Wine he entered the wine world as a wine educator under the guidance of Master of Wines, Fong Yi Walker and Edward Rand, the founders of Dragon Phoenix Wine Consulting. In 2017, Gus graduated with the Master of Science degree in Viticulture and Enology from UC Davis. Gus' commitment to the academic field of wine is evidenced by his MW dissertation about the sensory science of wine and by co-authoring a review paper called A Quarter Century of Wine Pigments Discovery, published in the Journal of Food and Agriculture. Gus provides wine education and consulting services to global wine professionals and consumers. He is currently a res residential educator of Dragon Phoenix Wine Consulting and a guest lecturer of Napa Valley Wine Academy. He also gives tutorials and feedback to worldwide diploma candidates in the WSET online classroom. Um, Gus, you may not know that, but uh, back in 2016, when I did my diploma, you were my um, wow. tutor. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks a lot. I did pass. Oh, great. Glad to hear that. So, welcome, Gus. Looking forward to your lecture today. Thank you, Alice. All right. I'll just uh, jump right in and start. Uh, the, the topic is, um, how do I say it? The topic is interesting to me as well is uh, i will repeat again is uh, the topic i'm talking about is a matter of taste and we're going to explore the differences between the palates of chinese and the chinese american wine professional it's a long topic so i have to break it down and the most important thing first before we think about chinese or chinese americans or all these kind of differences is to define the term taste uh, I think, uh, as for me, uh, I'm sort of based on Alice's introduction. I'm sort of a geek uh, in the scientific field. So I would like to define terms very carefully when we talk about things. And I also find out that in the wine trade, 
in the wine industry, people do not define the term taste properly when they talk about things. So eventually people talk things that they try to find solutions and try to come up with ideas, but then they got lost. Okay, so let's do the taste first. And that's probably uh, the something, the thing that people are very curious about, especially the people who are not from, coming from a Chinese or not coming from an Asian background, is what is taste? So I have to split taste into two different things. Okay, first is the sensory part of taste, which is purely about how we perceive things by our vision, by our eyes, by our nose, and by our palate, okay? So with that, we have huge genetic differences among people all over, all over the world, right? And you probably have that ex kind of experience uh, around you. Everybody's palate is different. Everybody perceives the same wine in different ways, etc., etc. Then there's another concept of taste. And I have to say, it's hard to separate it from the taste I just talked about. It is psychologically and from our uh, psychologically and also based on our health condition at the moment, what you perceive. Okay, so we have two folds. One is what you actually perceive on the nose, on the palate, and by your eyes, and the other is how the psychological part, your brain can possibly influence you. And for wine product, this is very interesting because this is such a product that can be hugely influenced by all these kind of information, these kind of psychological factors, the information that come into your brain and can actually directly influence what you perceive. I'll give you guys a very classic example. Um, some people run studies where they just use black glasses, use the glasses where uh, that if you put the wines in the glasses, you cannot actually see the color of the wine, right? And then they ask people just to smell the wine and tell people whether it's a white wine or red wine or rosé wine or sparkling, or etc. And people cannot even tell, some people in lots of conditions cannot tell the differences between the white wine and the red wine just by the smell without looking at it. Okay, so we, when we see the wine, when we see the color, when we see the bubbles, when we see the label information, that's affecting the taste already. And why do I have to talk about that before I talk about Chinese, Chinese Americans? It's because when we often talk about what kind of wine style or what kind of, what type of wines that can draw attention to certain consumers, what I hear in most of the cases is, oh, this is a dry wine or this is a refreshing wine and that is a sweet wine so that certain people would love the sweet stuff and certain people love the dry stuff. Certain people like the higher acid. Certain people love the wines that sort of goes well with food. But actually, when you talk about these things, you are mixing all these kind of factors that can affect your taste and it's so hard to really study what's the real so-called palate of certain type of people and certain groups of people 
Okay, so when I talk about the consumers, the Chinese and Americans, so-called palate later, I will emphasize again and again on the differences between what people actually taste without thinking, or and what people actually taste with all these kind of psychological logical factors that influence their palate. All right. So uh, I'm gonna talk, uh, have this kind of premise bef be before I talk about things. So for uh, the uh, Chinese and the Chinese wine professional, that's another concept that I have to clarify. So I talk about the definition of taste, right? Now I talk about the so-called Chinese and Chinese American wine professionals. Yes, I do. I did live in both cultures. I am from China. I lived in China for many years. In the sort of past five years, I lived in the States and now I come back to China. So I observe lots of different people, the Chinese over here and the Chinese American who live in the States. So there are differences, but we have to define them because the first thing we, I have to say is <laughs> Chinese, you cannot generalize Chinese people, okay? When some people see me and talk with me, and when they see some other Chinese people, we are completely different. Every single province in China, every city in China, the people's cult the cultures are different. And also, if you look at, like, just say, some people say, oh, what, what is Chinese food taste like? And what Chinese people... Uh, perceive the Chinese food well, and if you really know about Chinese food, okay, not those kind of, uh, uh, how to say, those kind of uh, very uh, Western view of the Chinese food. The local Chinese food, we have so many different dishes, and from each province and from each city, maybe there are larger group of people who will be drawn, their palate will be drawn to the type of food that they like and they are get used to because they grew up with those kind of food and they grew up eating and drinking those kind of things. So they are used to it. Okay, I'll give you examples. For example, from um, in Shanghai, okay, in, in the first tier city, Shanghai, in these kind of cities, uh, in Shanghai, people tend to get used to those kind of sweet food, food with some sweet taste, because that's the way they make a lot of Shanghai cuisines. Okay, and in in Chengdu, in that city, people probably get more used to the spicy type of food. But be careful about spicy food. I'm going to talk about that later. Spicy food has tons of different types. And maybe for Sichuan people, it's more about those kind of salty, savory, plus spicy, chili spice kind of food. And even with a bit of Sichuan pepper, those kind of numbing spicy food. Okay. And people may get used to that. And in certain provinces like Shanxi province, they use lots of black vinegar over there. So people are probably getting used to those kind of more sour or acid taste. All right. So there are these kind of huge diversity for people within a city from different cities. I'm not even mentioning the differences between people within a city, right? 
So you need to think about that. And also back to wine. Uh, I just mentioned in Shanxi uh, province, people may get used to this kind of uh, uh, vinegar-based food. But be careful. If you give a lot of Chinese people who has never tasted wine in their life, and when they taste the wine, they will just say, oh my God, this wine could be so acidic. But then you look at what they're eating, especially for certain Shanxi people. They are eating all the dishes with tons of vinegar. Okay, so they can tolerate or they would love, they probably love sour food. But the sour tastes are based on vinegar, not based on the tartaric acid dominant wine product. Right. So you need to really explore people by looking at where they live and their so-called eating and drinking habits and bear in mind the huge differences of pal- uh, of, of the so-called palace, okay, by genetic among people. So when you need to be aware of the genetic differences, you also need to be aware of the cultural differences. So today, there's no way for me to talk about genetic differences. We're just different, right? Each of us is different from, uh, we're from different from each other genetically. But I can talk more about the cultural differences. Now, moving from mainland China, the China part, to America, okay? (laughs) For American Chinese, you also need to make subcategories among them. Why? Because Chinese Americans are not just a native group of people who just appear in the land of America. Okay? We have different stages and we have different periods of time when you have different type of people who might have immigrated from uh, China, different parts of China, okay, to uh, the United States. And each generation could be different, right? And for I, I would say for lots of the American Chinese I've seen in the States, uh, you just see huge difference in between if their grandparents or their uh, mother and father moved from China to the States. They are very different in all sorts of ways from the people like me who went to the States uh, recently or in recent five or 10 years just for study and uh, perhaps they they stay there for a long time. And they are very different because if you grew up in an education system or cultural background in within mainland China, in different cities, in different provinces versus you grew up basically uh, in American culture, it's very different. And I'm not even saying in America, that's also the way we look at China. It's like each state and even within the state, each city, like I was in California for a long time, in San Francisco versus in Modesto, those cities are very different. Not only in terms of they look different, I seriously talk about when you look at the Chinese Americans over there or the just Chinese over there, they behave very differently. All right. 
So that's the general background. And I spend a lot of time talking about that is because we have to define the terms very carefully. What is taste? What is uh, Chinese palate? And what is Chinese American palate? You have to study them very carefully. And the only way you need to, you can learn about them is you work with the people, you understand people, you respect each individuals, and you respect the culture of each city, each province, each country. Okay, so that's that. And then I will talk about some of the difference that people might be curious about. But I have to do <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> a I have to say a thing that I'm not sure if uh, many people talk about this before, but personally, I don't see people talk about that. Okay. The thing is, um, there is a thing called, okay, we are making a wine that is like muscat or some sweeter Rieslings or Gewurztraminer. Okay, those kind of aromatic, uh, uh, very fruity, floral, and probably has some residual sugar, those, some, those type of wines. Okay. And then I hear people talk about, say, Gewurztraminer or Traminer. Okay. There's a, such an aromatic wine, has a, some sweet perception, all that. And then they started to say, okay, that kind of wine is such a great pairing with spicy Asian food like Thai food or certain Chinese hot pot and all those kind of things. And I'm like, okay, okay, why? And people say, oh, it's because the spicy, the spicy food, the spiciness and all the fruity flavors and the sweet flavors can complement each other very well. Well, some people may agree with that, agree on that. I personally have gr had great experience eating Thai food, eating certain spicy hot pot from Sichuan province with Gewurztramina, with Rieslings, with Sauvignon Blanc even, okay? Those kind of wines. But never ever imagine all of a sudden, one day, all Chinese and all Chinese Americans, all those kind of Asian themed restaurants started to show all buy all your Gervais Tremino. They start to buy all your Rieslings. They start to buy all your Sauvignon Blancs. That will never happen. Why? Because people don't even, most people don't even drink wine as their daily drink for in China and for most Chinese Americans. All right? So, when I talk about the palate here, I'm talking about the culture and I'm talking about the market. Is that when you look at the palate, when Gewurz Tremino and spicy food pair with together, no, it's not about that. If you really want to sell wine or produce wine, you are looking purely at the market. We do not drink, most people do not drink Gewurz Tremino every day. Most people, even they eat a lot of spicy hot pot in China, in certain provinces, they would bring beer, they would ask for water, they would bring Coca-Cola, they would do all these other drinks other than Riesling and Gewurztraminer. Okay, so when you 
ever want to use those kind of food and so-called palate matching, flavor matching thing, imagine Chinese people, Chinese Americans would pair these things and they would do that as a daily habit. Don't. Okay, unless you are such a marketing genius and you can just push the whole wave of this kind of Asian spicy food pair with Riesling campaign all over the world. Well, I don't even think Riesling sell that well all over the world as compared to Chardonnay. Right. So that is a, a thing that I have to say about these things is that when you look at the palate, you do not just look at the flavor matching side. Okay, so that's the thing. So that's a similarity, I have to say, is that most Chinese and most Chinese Americans would not just say, okay, it's a Sunday, it's a Saturday or it's a Sunday, let's go out and eat at a restaurant. Okay, let's do Thai food and let's pair with Gobert's Terminer. Okay, I don't see that those kind of people. All right. So that's, that's a, that's a thing. Um, for differences, uh, I have to go back. Differences between the palate of Chinese and Chinese Americans. I need to go back and talk about, uh, uh, the, uh, let's just say currently. Okay. When uh, I'm not talking about like uh, in the past, let's say 30 or 40 years ago, how my parents would perceive why. That's a complete uh, different topic. It's a fascinating topic, but it takes a long time. But I would talk about currently, what do I see? Okay. Currently, the promising things about the difference you see in the palette, so called palette, is still the market part, is that. I just came back from California last year in August. So that's 2020 August. Um, when I resume wine education in China, we have tons, like a huge increasing number of people, Chinese young people who studied abroad before and or they lived abroad before or they are still living abroad, but temporarily they, they are staying in China to see their parents or do whatever things. And there's a huge group of people who have this kind of foreign experience and they start to understand and they start to drink wines and they drink lots of different wines and they have higher level of wine knowledge. Okay. And that is very interesting. And because of COVID, they cannot travel freely either. So they are within mainland China now eating and drinking. And what do they eat? They eat all sorts of food because they are exposed to all sorts of food. Chinese food, of course, uh, if you live in abroad for a long while and in the city, in a place where there are not lots of authentic Chinese food, you would <laughs> eat a lot of Chinese food over here from different places you would like and you eat them and they drink a lot of different wines with the food or they just drink wines in their daily life as a life, their own lifestyle. And for those people, I have to emphasize again, is the, are mostly those people who either have high level of ed education and mostly they have studied abroad or they live abroad or something like that. They are the type of Chinese 
who can actually develop a lifestyle habit of drinking wine. And there's still very a uh, small percentage of people, young um, people, like them living in China at the moment. But it's inc- the numbers are increasing, and that is the exciting part. Although it's a small part of the market, but it's the most exciting part because really people really do drink wine for their lifestyle. Okay, and for Chinese Americans who live there. If they are like second, second or third generation of American, they probably already got integrated into the、uh, American way of drinking. That's that's easy to explain. But for the people who are still currently staying there, study or、uh, studying there, right? But they were grew、uh, they they grow they grew up in China, but currently live and study in America in different places. They are. The type of people I just talk about—they are more open-minded, so they would try out things that really suit their lifestyle. All right. So those are the major difference I would say is that most Chinese people still do not drink lots of wine, and they do—they would never ever have these kind of habit of daily drinking wine as a lifestyle. We have the national alcohol. Alcoholic beverage called baijiu, and people drink that, right? That's a national beverage, and wine would always be a small percentage of the market. The baijiu beer, everything would always be the whole chunk of the market. But for the people who have higher education and would pursue certain lifestyle, and if they have been exposed to those kind of interesting lifestyle abroad. They would start to develop a habit of drinking wine, and don't forget for those kind of people who usually study or live abroad, and for Chinese Americans, well,、uh, their uh, uh, how to say their income and their wealth is sort of、uh, better than most. I would say blue collar or even those those kind of uh, 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 most people. Populations in China, they are still struggling of earning、uh, enough money for the lifestyle that can have in,、uh, have dispensable money spending on wine, right? So you need to think about the small group of people who would go out and really drink wine for their lifestyle. And one thing I have to add is that <laughs> when I when I'm in America, okay. I deliberately avoid certain things, such as the, I wouldn't say the brand, but there are so many American Chinese fast food that are there. I think they are they are delicious. I can eat them, no problem. But it is not Chinese food. So if you t- if we go back and talk about those kind of second generation or even. Third generation of Chinese Americans, if their family do not cook their local cuisines in their family, and they grew up with those kind of so-called American eating habit, I have to say their palate could be different, because all they eat—not、uh, all they eat—for most of them, their understanding of Chinese food are. Orange chicken, 
or lemon chicken. I've never ever had those kind of American Chinese food called lemon chicken or lime chicken or lemon、uh, lemon chicken in my life until I went to the states to study. And if you talk about,、uh, if you talk to most people, or, or those American, the, the American people talk to most Chinese, they will say, "Oh, I love, uh, uh, I love a dish called 左宗棠鸡 orange chicken, those kind of things. Uh, that, uh, do, uh, like I think it's delicious. It's a delicious dish from China, but we don't have such dish." Or we may have it now in some places, but traditionally, I've never ever heard of China. In very traditional Chinese dishes from every single province, there's such thing called orange chicken. Yes, thanks.、Okay. Same situation for me.、Uh, I also personally never had fortune cookie before、uh, oh, yeah. in the U.S.、Um, and and I agree with your.、Um, Uh, observation in terms of the stereotype of all Chinese, because personally I don't eat anything spicy,、uh, whether it is Sichuan or pepper or chili. I just practically cry if I walk past a hot pot.、Yeah. Sichuan. So thanks for that comment.、Um, so I just like to point out that、um, in to summarize a bit of what you just said.、Um, sure. So in a way, those um, more um, affluent、uh, young drinkers who had experience living in the West and moved back to China. They are kind of the trendsetter, right, for the wine scene in China, and they're mostly based in the big cities、uh, like Shanghai and and Beijing. And what is the percentage of wine drinkers at that、uh, for these cities for the, representing the rest of the country? The 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 problem is there's no there's no way you can get data to support this. But I have to say there's something interesting you just talk about, Alice. Is that you point out most of them are in first tier cities. Right, those kind of very developed cities in China, like Beijing, Shanghai,、uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, all those kind of cities. But I have to say, you also started to find more and more of them in at least second tier cities. Like my hometown is Nanjing, the other Jing, as opposed to Beijing, right? Nanjing and、uh, Chengdu. Chengdu is a very obvious example of there is a great drinking culture. Developing in Chengdu, not only drinking Chinese beer, but they also start to drink wine, a foreign product because that's lifestyle. I just I was just back from Chengdu. They just opened a natural wine bar, and it's so not not natural wine bar, natural wine restaurant. Okay, featuring great food and some great natural wines, and it's it's all about lifestyle. And people are living those lifestyle at the moment. And if what you said was true, that people in China don't really pair their Westernina or those aromatic wines with their regular spicy food, in terms of introducing wines to those、um, population,、uh, let's say they are non-drinkers, and we try to convert them into drinkers, what would be a, a safer bet so that producers or importers won't go into a major market flop in their business plan because they were in the wrong thinking? Yeah, as I said. It's all about you understand your targeted group. Say, for example, you are target you are winery with high volume, and your price is at a very good price, inexpensive, and people will just buy a lot of them, right? If your winery is positioned in that way, I would say one thing I said to、uh, in a lot of、uh, seminars is that、uh, 
Don't forget in China, there's a thing called OEM, which is huge now. It's sort of like a private labeling. You send the wines bulk to China and the company will do whatever label they would like in order to sell. And the biggest selling cases are uh, the Chinese New Year holidays or some other mid-autumn festival holidays. And they would customize those Chinese companies, OEM companies, will customize your label into, let's say, next year is Tiger Year. So they will put a tiger on the label and they will help you sell tons of them because those are corporate buying. And they have they just want the volume. They just want to buy cases of wines to uh, send them as gifts to corporate people. But if you are targeting the people that I just talked about, you have to remember, you have to be small and you have your product had to be sort of premium, but not have to be ultra premium, but you sort of have the certain quality level, right? And then you would or would understand what those people are thinking about. I have to say those people, lots of them have lots of wine knowledge now. So you can actually sell those kind of terroir concept or regional concept or great varieties, or even this type of food may pair well with certain food. Okay, to those people with knowledge, and when they, uh, those people who are seriously drinking wine and digging into wine, you can sell in those kind of ways by selling the style, by selling the quality. But you, but it, you have to do research first. Those people are not easy to find unless you are, have a great uh, partner in China or a company in China who already have those kind of clients and understand those people, and they can help you sell, okay? Of course, there are other type of consumers, but I cannot just uh, uh, describe them one by one, but I believe the, uh, few, the following seminars uh, will talk to, uh, some other speakers will talk about these. Yeah, it can be indeed challenging. I was going to say, in terms of research, if we could all travel now, then we would come to China and stay there for a few months and try the food and do our own pairing, but we can't travel there. Uh, that would yeah. be the now, you mentioned Baijiu. Uh, how, what do you think about fortified wines? Not that it is close to the um, same alcohol level, but in terms of the impression of the sensory taste, um, that it is a little bit more alcoholic, but also have that savory tang, salty tang, that might link closer to the Chinese palate of what they are affectionate with, um, with um, Baijiu. What do you think about that um, fortified wine? That's, that's super interesting. Because, uh, first of all, sorry, we do not just look at them as fortified wines, okay? So, actually, it's not uh, the logic in terms of, okay, Baijiu is usually uh, 40 to even 50, right. 55, 60% of alcohol. And then we can sell some, like, higher alcohol wines, like fortified wines. No, it's not about that. Uh, fortified wines struggle to sell all over the world, right? But... I have to say, I know some very successful companies, very few of them. I will say only two, okay? One company sells sherry extremely well. The other company sells Madeira extremely well. And I'll tell you why. It's not because they are hiring alcohol. The company who sells sherry well is because certain type of sherry, like 
Oloroso Amontillado, they sort of taste like the Chinese Huangjiu, the yellow wine. Because the Chinese yellow wine is, of course, based on grains, but they are also uh, sort of oxidized and have all these kind of microbial transform transformation. And they have similar taste. And when people are kind of, actually in China nowadays, people are not drinking as much as yellow wine, Huangjiu, as compared to the past. In our history, actually our, in the Chinese most historical, most popular wines are rice wines or yellow wines, those kind of wines. But now people are not drinking lots of them, uh, except for people, especially in Shanghai, in Jiangzhe area, the Shanghai surrounding provinces, they drink uh, quite a few Huangjiu to pair with, they really pair with their local cuisines, like Da Zha Xie, the, 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 the hairy crab, the very famous um, uh, crab in China. Uh, and they, they, they truly started to pick up this kind of sherry trend because they think, oh, this is sort of like Huangjiu, yellow wine. And in some cases, I have to say, it's easier drinking than Huangjiu, especially those kind of phenol sherries, right? You just chill them and you just drink them and that's it. And, and then you look at Madeira, that company. Madeira, they are now marketing Madeira, especially uh, premium Madeira, like those kind of 10 years or Frascara or even vintage Madeiras. They start to import them and do what? It's a, another product that could possibly replace certain whiskey market share. So some young, some, there's a trend in China drinking those sorts of premium whiskeys now. And then Madeira can came, come in to say, okay, this is another type of product. It's wine. It, but it is sort of, you can treat it like whiskey-like. And it's collectible, especially for those kind of vintage ones or long mature, long aging ones. Okay. So do you see that it's not about the purely about the taste of the alcohol. It's really about what special type of product can directly fit in an existing habit or lifestyle of Chinese people. Right. So guys, I have one final question, not meant sure. to be a question. Um, in terms of we going back to talk about wine professionals, the palates, uh, from my experience, there are two types of wine professionals, um, especially when we talk about sommeliers, ones that have gone through formal training for MW, uh, um, uh, WSE courses or the court of sommelier courses. And then there are ones that really learn from the job and learn on the job as they go. Um, so in terms of um, the impacts of the ones that have been going through formal education and now that WSE courses aren't currently actively running in China. How would you see the impact in terms of um, these one professionals that have gone through formal training and the other kinds that learn by experience and how it will affect um, their influence in the market or at least for on trade? Okay, so when we talk about the wine business in China is really wine education is tiny percentage of the market, okay? It is booming, but it's tiny part. Um, and uh, most people, when they try to do wine qualifications, especially for trade professionals, it is no difference. This is, uh, this is fitting to the topic today, is that both for Chinese, for Chinese Americans, for Americans, and for people around the world, 
it's always better if you work in an industry that you have a certification and you have certain qualification that can help you learn and that can even help you possibly find jobs and possibly help you open doors and connect with more people like me connecting with Alice now. Uh, imagine we were already connected through online courses of WCT a few years ago, right? So I think that's that part. But I have to say, even if certain qualifications are not running in China at the moment, we see the people who truly want to learn about wine just for their lifestyle. And that is what I just talked about, is that those people, especially those people who study abroad, live abroad, those type of people, always higher education level, they can come to learn wines for a more sophisticated lifestyle for develop personal interest, for meeting people in a class, right? And it is, I have to say, uh, yes, there are certain parts of the education market where we, uh, we cannot get in terms of, uh, the, for those people who really just want to do qualifications. But for the people who are studying now, not purely for qualifications, they are I have to say they are more interesting people and I tend to drink and eat with them after class. Okay. Thanks a lot, Gus. Um, I think that wraps up our, um, our seminar today. Do you have any final words? Uh, I just need to say, although it's, um, hard, like you said, it's hard to travel due to COVID and everything, uh, we can still connect online, like in this format. And also, uh, I think, uh, it really forces people to understand where the, the places where you cannot actually touch, right? So do more communications and do more research and talk to people, email people, phone people. And I think people are even more friendlier, uh, even more friendly now, right? Uh, among each other. And we just need to talk and communicate and raise a glass. And although I, I will work a bit later, so I cannot drink now, but raise a glass. And if you understand people from different culture more, you can naturally see the business opportunities. Yes, I agree with you that this pandemic did open a lot of other opportunities that we didn't think about before. So we can work out some other ways. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Gus, thanks. for your seminar today, and I hope to uh, see you in person soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, everyone. Have a good Cheers. Time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali International Wine and Spirits Exhibition, the biggest drinks trade fair in the world. Save the date, the next edition of Vinitali will be held the 2nd through the 5th of April 2023. Remember to subscribe to Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find us at italianwinepodcast.com. Cin cin! guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.